Welcome to Waywards, where we take a few sidelong looks at literature to wonder where we ought to go. I'm Steve Chisnell, and here is a Waywards mini-episode. It seems all of my life I've been a Lord of the Rings fan. I have a boxed set of the old Ballantine paperbacks. I've been read dozens and dozens of times, I think, cited in preteen arguments about the origins of orcs versus goblins and years wearing of a Frodo lives button. Tolkien's mythos spoke a comfortable European middleness, a foundational home for traditional fantasy. What did I know? But mostly, I became something of a purist as well. The canon of works, which of course included the Silmarillion, the Lost Book of Tales, the Lays of Beleriand, those would be my starting point for the ideas of fantasy mythos. Everything else was derivative. But as more and more Tolkien books emerged, all bearing the name of the son, Christopher, I began to get more suspicious. What was original and what was just a con of making more books for money? By that time, of course, Ralph Bakshi had come out with 1978's animated film, which to my 15-year-old mind was nothing but glorious. The disturbing adaptations by Rankin-Bass would soon follow, films that reminded me more of Thundercats and Frosty the Snowman than Tolkien. Bakshi never finished his work, and his composer Leonard Rosenman had used the same film score for Lord of the Rings that he had for a Star Trek movie in Battle for the Planet of the Apes. It was all sacrilege, really an audacious shredding of the powerful text that I had come to know and revere. So, by the time 2001 arrived and Peter Jackson's original trilogy commenced, and you and I both know the resulting impact on popular culture, from action figures to New Zealand airplane fins, there's little left of the original text in our popular imagination. A little, that is, that isn't colored, tainted, occupied, and preoccupied by these other works. If I were to spend an episode of Waywards looking at Tolkien's work, what would we talk about? What is the text that we would discuss exactly? Now, I know there are still purists out there who either thumb their noses at the filmic history of Middle-earth or who venerate the films nonetheless and look upon the bookish version as an antiquated grail. These folks would point at the original Tolkien and demand we look there. And true, there is much to be said about the amazing undertaking of that work. To describe it as original, however, becomes a bit more problematic. Certainly the creatures of Middle-earth are hardly original. Elves, dwarves, and dragons have been around for a while, as have any number of good quest stories. True, the hobbits themselves seem to have sprung wholly from this author, and the story is, afterwards, a vast assemblage of adventures and danger with and among a mythology that to most good Western Europeans felt entirely familiar. We needed no explanations. Middle-earth is a fable directly from our culture. Tolkien himself was less certain of the story as well. It evolved over a dozen years, and the first versions of the beginning of the story looked very little like what it eventually grew into. Moreover, Tolkien himself was having no small doubts about his own level of authority over his writing and his academics. 
having promised and promised more serious works which he rarely delivered, and then challenged to write a second Hobbit story, he borrowed heavily from his own medieval studies. Writes John Bauer, If readers have not previously detected Troilus and the Canterbury Tales in Tolkien's Middle-earth, it is because nobody was alert for noticing these ingredients. So what we have is a Lord of the Rings trilogy that's built from a tradition which precedes it, with sections and ideas lifted from ancient works. No wonder that Bilbo's meeting with the dragon and his horde feels detail by detail similar to one you find in Beowulf. We have a work which the author himself saw changed by editors unwilling to take a risk on publishing it in its entirety. And we now have countless revisions, film and music scores, video and role-play games, and an upcoming television series of the work. What exactly do we mean by original? The word fails in two different senses. It is neither a completely unique work created directly and only by a single author, nor is it the first utterance of some of its story. Instead, what we seem to have is an evolving lineage of story which proceeds across our cultural history, evolving and changing along the way. This is not at all to say that we cannot examine the novel that the Oxford linguist wrote. Tolkien, by the way, wished it to be called an historical romance. We can examine it, and we should. My point here is that the word original is fraught with assumptions and prejudices in our own thinking as readers, which can frustrate our own meaning-making. Put another way, my teen self, which loves the books, can still love them, but I do myself no favors by pretending them a grail or relic. They are a moment in time, a chapter in the evolution of art, a contribution to the conspiracy. Recall from our Fowls in the Frith episode our discussion of authorship, and specifically of its conspiracy idea. We breathe together, work together to form the text before us. It is our prejudice for the printed book which also compels an idea of original and solitary artist. Tolkien is absolutely an author, that is, an authority, of The Lord of the Rings. He is also the first of its writers, but he is not the beginning nor the end of the work, or of its many incarnations. I can address, therefore, Tolkien's text as a subject to be read, Yet I can also look at Bakshi's movie. I can also, of course, examine the pandemic's One Zoom to Rule Them All by Josh Gad, Rankin Bass's song Where There's a Whip, There's a Way, or Chaucer's The Pardoner's Tale. Each is a text we read. Where and how each merits our attention is a separate question. That is, we must still decide why and how we decide what to look at. But recall, too, even here, that the canon of literature was defined and chosen by readers, especially educators, for the purpose of training and shaping moral behavior. So we must take the question of a definition of merit pretty seriously. At the very least, I think we can exclude such training as merit's sole criterion. We might do somewhat better, as best as we are able, to attempt a bit of what I suggested last time with Adichie that we let the work create and define its own epistemology and its own purposes. Now, setting aside one's prejudices means first being able to identify them. 
The 15-year-old me was ready to defend the original Tolkien trilogy to the last, not understanding that it was neither the original, nor a trilogy, nor, at the least the version I read, Holy Tolkien's. And it isn't that I got my history wrong. It's that I believed the wrong history because of my affection for a concept called original by a concept called the author. And that, I believe, is because we have lived the last few centuries inside a technological bubble called the printed book, something which both liberated and limited our ability to think about meaning. Notice, then, how easy it is to point at the more recent editions of Lord of the Rings and question our ideas of authorship and originality. Who, precisely, is the author of the revisions of dialogue and plotting to the Peter Jackson films? Is it Jackson alone? The credit reel begs to differ, with teams of writers and editors and actors working conspiratorially to shape the story we know. Some of the actors insisted that they had not read the Tolkien work. Why would that be important? Many critics of the Jackson films claimed that they deviated from Tolkien's works. Why is it important that they stay the same? As we move away from the monopolizing idea of printed book, which identifies single authorities for texts, we see more and more cases where the medieval concept of authorship re-emerges and is itself modified. We are in a state of transition not just in technology and media production, but perhaps of literacy itself. How we choose to make meaning, or how we fail to, is one of the most interesting and important questions before us. All I wish to claim here is that our idea of original is worth slowing down to consider. Not only its accuracy, but our belief or need for its accuracy. One of my professors, many years ago, told us a story about Ludwig Beethoven writing his Bagatelle in A minor, uh, Wu 59, which stands for Work Without Opus, number 59, more famously called Fur Elise. You know it, I suspect. Imagine, he said, that Herr Beethoven was proud of a student of his who had been working steadily to learn the piano, Elise. As a gift, the teacher decided to write for her a short piece. He worked out his drafts, his themes, the development, and over the course of an evening completed the piece. He performed it to his own satisfaction and then presented it to her at the lesson the next day. At the lesson, he played it for her again so she could hear it properly. Uh, but perhaps he was a bit nervous for the live performance, changing tempo a bit here and there. Which version of the song was the real Fur Elise, the one he played the night before, or the one at the lesson. He gave it to her, and she attempted to play it, though her sight reading was troubled. She stumbled often. Eventually, she improved. Which version of the song is the real Fur Elise, the one that Beethoven played, or one of the ones that Elise played? Or is it true that the real Furry Lease only exists on the manuscript page? That seems an odd way to identify music by what is written down. Of course, it is difficult and perhaps not entirely necessary to identify the original or primary text of the Bagatelle by Beethoven. 
But this question, the one of which text precisely is furry lease, can step in the other direction as well. If we cannot or will not identify which text is the real one, can we at least identify when a song is not furry lease? The cartoon Peanuts Schroeder famously played the song on his toy piano, somehow doing so while the black keys were only painted on. Is his version furry lease? What about mine? About the same time I was reading Tolkien at age 12, I was working on learning that song. What if I performed it on a clarinet? Still furry lease? What if I added a dance beat to it? Still furry lease? We have some new challenges to consider, don't we? If I cannot easily identify an original text, can I identify a not the text? Or is labeling any performance furry lease enough to compel us to compare it to the Beethoven composition? Call it a ridiculous question. Say that most of my versions here are not worth listening to or reading at all. But every judgment we make about the merit of a text comes laden with some assumptions as well. Many unexamined. And so, we've just touched upon the topic for our next episode, an examination of the works of Vincent van Gogh. To close us out this time, then, I have the music here before me. Here is my personal performance of Beethoven's Bagatelle in A minor, Work Without Opus number 59, for Elise. Now, go read something. Anything.